Thank you for listening to this recording of one of the sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Milford, Connecticut. The sermon is one part of our public worship on Sundays at Christ Presbyterian Church, Milford. While much of the sermon has broad application, it is directed specifically to the congregation here in Milford and reflects our lives, needs, concerns, and context. We think it's important to note that the sermon follows many other aspects of worship, praise, singing, confession of sins and absolution, scripture reading, and sometimes a baptism or the reception of new members. It precedes prayers, confessions of faith, an offering, and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. All of these are integrated and ideally should not be separated. We're particularly concerned not to separate word and sacrament. By its nature, the sermon calls for a response, receiving the Lord's Supper with the accompanying prayers, reflections, and life of response and community. If you're not a part of Christ's presence, Milford, we hope the sermon is helpful to you and propels you to a full worship and engagement with Jesus' body in your own community. Psalm 131, a song of ascent of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The word of the Lord. Hello, hello. Okay, good, we're on. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is a privilege and an honor to bring to you this morning the word of the Lord from one of my favorite texts, if not my favorite text in the Bible, Psalm 131. It's been called, and I believe rightly so, a psalm of contentment. Now, who in here would not want contentment? Scan over the past year and a half all of the anxiety that you may have felt or you certainly felt. Imagine the freedom that you could have if you have contentment. Imagine. Well, David here says something phenomenal, something that's, in a sense, otherworldly, that he found contentment that he was free from pride? Well, that's what David says here. And uh, it's even more amazing that this was a communal hymn. Sung by David, yes, but, but, gather, but people gathered together and this, the idea of a psalm of ascent, a song of ascent, meaning the, 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 the Jewish men, women, and children would start at the bottom of, of the hill in Jerusalem and walk up to the temple and it would sing this song. This psalm, as many think, was, was written whenever Jerusalem was, had been destroyed. And this is a psalm that they would sing even in the midst of ruin. Think about that. This is a psalm of contentment. With that being said, let's pray and then we'll dive right in. Father in heaven, we bless your most holy name. The Lord and giver of life. The God of all comfort, the God of peace, the God of all hope. We ask, O oh Lord, that you do what only you can do, and that is to pour your Spirit out upon us this morning, to comfort those who are afflicted, to restore the backslider into fellowship with your Son, and yes, O oh Lord, to save the sinner and to enlighten the eyes. Only you can do that, O oh Lord. 
We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said, this is a psalm of contentment. So let's give a, a definition of contentment. And I think it's a helpful one. This is not created by me, but it's a, I think it's a helpful definition. So what is contentment? Contentment is this. It is learning to love the life you have with God, even if it's not the life you wanted. Contentment, again, let me say it again, is learning to love the life you have with God, even if it's not the life you wanted. That last part, I think, is the heaviest part, even if it's not the life you wanted. Think of all the dreams you had as a teenager. Think of all the hopes that you had. How many of them have you had to see let go? Changed, squashed. Has that produced peace in your heart? Has it produced a sort of giving up? A waning of, 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 youth, of youthful hope in your heart? I think David has something to say about that. I mean, imagine the, the backdrop of David's life. Here's a man in his teen years was anointed to be the next king of Israel, which means he was going to have a crown and a throne and subjects in a kingdom, power and glory. He was, the, he was God's man to bring Israel back and to bring Israel into a promise that God, had, that God had given, to be the first true king of Israel. And there's the anointing. Imagine that great ordination service. He bows, and Samuel pours oil on his head, and he declares Daniel king. Imagine all the hopes and joy and anticipation that Daniel, a teenager boy, would have. But prior to that, he slayed a giant. He was praised by many. And then after this ordination service, what happens? The next scene we see him, he is dodging spears from the king, running for his life, hiding in caves, not a throne, but a cave, not a crown, but a king trying to kill him. It seems sort of paradoxical. It seems contradictory. How can God promise me something, and yet I get the exact opposite, seemingly? Well, that's the backdrop of David. Now, imagine David is saying that, or imagine that that's David's life, and here's what he says. He says, I've had victory in three areas. I have found victory in three areas. I found victory over the, the, the illness the, of being discontent in three areas. I've had victory in the heart. I've had victory in the eyes. And I've had victory in the mind. I've had victory in the heart. I've had victory in the eyes and I've had victory in the mind. So let's look at it first. He says here in verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not proud. Another way that this could be translated is my heart is not exalted. It's not lifted up. That's what pride does. Pride will always look at itself and see greatness. It, would, it will say, I deserve this. I deserve that. To have anything less than what I think I deserve frustrates us. It frustrates us. I planned a vacation and a pandemic run at all. And what happens? We, we get frustrated and we start raising our fists to God. As though God, as though, as though God promised us a vacation. 
I want to get fill in the blank, and we don't get it. And we fight, and we complain. Behind all that is pride. That's what David's saying. He said, I am not prideful. Yes, I may have a cave as my dwelling place right now, but I'm not prideful. I'm not complaining. And it's, it's fascinating when you read David's story during that period, in between period, between him being anointed king and him actually becoming king, installed as king. You never once see him complaining. What you do see him saying is when he has an opportunity to kill the king, he says he will not because he calls him the Lord's anointed. That's what you see. You see David encouraging all those who were, who, who, who were disheveled and, and vagabonds. They come to him, and he is the one that's pouring out encouragement. He had enough energy in himself to encourage, not complain. Oh, Lord, my heart is not proud. He had found victory in the heart. Then he says, he's had victory in the eyes. My eyes are not haughty. Or, another way, is arrogant. Now, what's the difference between pride and arrogance? It may seem very similar, if not synonymous, but there's a subtle difference. Pride is puffed up in its own greatness. Arrogance. If I'm to be prideful, arrogance says I need to be better than somebody else. It's always a comparison game. It's always a comparison game. How many times have we looked at somebody else and looked at their lot, and we say things such as, oh, man, I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that. Wasn't that the, the, the downfall of the, the Pharisee? Whenever in the parable that Jesus gave the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the Pharisee looks at the tax, prays to God, he says, I'm, oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. Arrogance. Arrogance. His eyes, he says, are not arrogant. Now, what does it mean by the eyes? Well, yes, it does mean to look down on something, but another way, ambition. Ambition. Why do we, if we're honest, why do we pursue great things? I'm, I, I, I played football. I'm a big football fan. I played college football, high school football, all the way down. I played middle school, elementary football. So in my DNA is to compete with the next person. My job is to outdo the competition. If I'm to win the spot on the team, I need to outdo the competition. If I'm going to be the best on the team, I need to outdo everybody else. My success is at your expense. Imagine living life like that. Is there room for contentment? Is there room to be of any encouragement to somebody if that person is a threat to you? Not at all. David says, I found victory there. We'll find out later where, where his eyes were actually at. So he's found victory in the heart, no pride. He's found victory in the eyes, no arrogance. And he says, I found victory in the mind. Right there again in the last part of verse 2, verse 1. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. I like how uh, other ways, other verses translate this. I do not walk about and things too great or too marvelous for me. Now, what does he mean by that? Now, if you are a Christian, think about all the wonderful things that we think about, the wonderful things that are preached to you, the wonderful things you read in the Bible. 
Jesus being God and man, fully God, fully man, how does that work together? And we wreck our minds at churches. The church in history has wrecked its mind over that. And it's grown because of it. Or the Trinity. One God, three persons. Equal in power and glory. How? It's a profound mystery. But yet, to think about it is to sanctify yourself. It's to grow, it's to flex your spiritual muscles. It's to know him. Or think about the the sovereignty of God. That we Christians can say that this pandemic is under the direct control of the good hand of God. The good hand. As people die left and right. Think of how that is way above our pay grade. To think, to, to dwell in that region. That's God's reason, but yet we are, to, we are to confess it and to think about it. So what is David saying here? Do not walk about in things too great and too marvelous for me. When I just said that we as Christians should think about things that are great and marvelous for us, if not too great and too marvelous for us. What David is saying is getting at this question. Why do I have why don't I have this gift that somebody else has? Why can't I sing? Why am I not beautiful by the world's standards? Why am I sick? Why is my life like this, God? Why have you given me this lot in my life? And I look at somebody else and they don't have it. And we pray and we pray and we pray and we hear nothing. What David is saying is that I do not camp there. With the idea of walking about, it's like a mule who just walks in circles. Just treads and treads and treads and treads in circles. David is saying, I, do not, I, I leave the mysteries of God to God. And whatever lot God has given me, I've learned to keep moving and to trust him. One of the sources of discontentment rests on that question, doesn't it? When we find ourselves ill-content with what God has given us, it, it hinges there. Why do I have this and not that? Why did God give me this and not that? And David is saying he's found victory there. He's okay suffering, in a sense. Not that he loves suffering, but he's okay not being successful. Because he hasn't lost God. He hasn't lost God. He hasn't lost the giver of all good gifts. He may, he may not have the gift, but he hasn't lost the giver of all good gifts. So he says he's found victor in the heart, in the eyes, in the mind. And then he makes this transition. He says, surely, or as the, I'm reading the NASB, but the ESV said, but I have. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Now, why do I make that distinction between my translation and another? I usually don't do that if I, if I didn't think it was important. Because I think David is not just making this smooth transition into a next statement. This idea of surely or but I, it's, a, it's an interesting way of making an oath. Of making an oath. Now, remember who is talking here. It's a king. Presumably a king. 
And when you read through the kings in the Old Testament, one of the, thing, one of the reasons why the bad kings were bad and the good kings were good, one of the reasons the bad kings were bad is this. They were prideful. They were prideful. And it says this of many kings, their hearts were exalted. And of the good kings, they're humble. Their hearts were like David. And guess what? When the bad kings were bad, guess what else was bad? The people. When the good, when the good kings were good, guess who else was good? The people. So David realizes something here. David realizes that there's a lot hinging on him. There's a whole lot hinging on him. So he's saying, oh God, Psalm was saying, I swear to you, my heart has been leveled out. That's another way of saying, I have composed or calmed and quieted my soul. If, me, if any of you work with, with wood or any type of construction, you know the, the level. If I wanted to see if this level, this table was level, I'd put this the, the level there, and I would watch the bubble, and I'd try to get the bubble right there in the center. And that's why I know this table will be sturdy. David is saying the level on my heart, if you look at the bubble, it is calm and peaceful right there in the middle. I've calmed it and quieted my soul. How many of your souls came in this morning like a stormy sea? Like a stormy sea. Well, like a calm, peaceful, it was a, 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 a previously calm, peaceful lake that had a rock thrown into it. And there's all these ripple effects that have disturbed the peace in your heart. So how has he learned this? How has he quieted and composed his soul? He gives, he gives us an example, like a child, like a weaned child. Now, there's a process of weaning. I have no children, so please forgive me if I'm, I'm speaking to parents and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But <laughs> I believe two or three years, weaning the child from dependency, total ultimate dependency, to a level of trust. You remember that time whenever, when, the, when the child was hungry, it would just cry. You tell it to stop crying, it wouldn't stop. Wouldn't stop until you gave it the bottle. That's how it told you it was hungry. Or if it wanted you to hug it and hold it, it would just cry. You couldn't say, wait, I'll be there in a second. No, until you held the child in its arms, the child, that's when the child would be content. Well, David is saying, I'm like the wean child. The child that whenever it's hungry can say, mom, dad, I'm hungry. And you can say, food's coming, wait, and the child on a good day, waits. <laughs> waits. Or when the child just wants your presence and you're in another room and it comes knocking at your door, Mommy, Daddy, where are you? Mommy and Dad will be out a minute. Okay. And it's just happy with you there in its presence. When he or she is playing with his or her toys and you're just there in the room. Just there. It's content. It's all it wants. David is saying, my heart is like that. Childlike faith. You know what makes heaven rejoice? It's childlikeness. It's childlikeness. You want heaven to, to look down and smile and say, oh my goodness, that's the miracle. It's when that one of the sons and daughters of King Jesus is going through hell. 
a hard time. And yet it can offer up praises and thanksgiving to God from a true content heart. Even with eyes filled with tears, even with scars all over the soul. There's a, uh, a, a wonderful, not a wonderful picture, it's, it's, a, it's a telling picture, but the book, um, I think it's called Night by Eli Weisel, I think that's his name, Weisel. Um, he was a, um, he escaped one of the concentration camps in, in, in Hitler's Germany as a Jew. Um, he tells the story of how they were on the run, they had escaped from one of the concentration camps, and they're on the run through the, at, through the night. And the, 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 the military was behind them. Some of the soldiers were behind them chasing them. Well, he's with a group of people. And one of the, one of the other boys had, had a violin. That was broken, but he still had a violin. He loved it. So they're running, 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 running in the dead of night. Running dead of night. Cold. Winter. And the boy realizes that he can run no, run no longer. So you know what he does? He sits down. He pulls up that broken violin. And he plays. He plays. He plays music as he's running for his life. I think there's a picture there of what contentment looks like in this world. As a matter of fact, you experience it as we were singing a song. Some of you came in here with heavy hearts, quite possibly. Scars. Fear. And if you sang Knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. You experience that as a community. And then he ends, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now that's just not a a cool way to end the psalm. David is summarizing the whole. He's summarizing the whole. He's saying, you can have contentment. If you scan back over Psalm 131 and you look at it, how can I not be prideful? How can I not be arrogant? Can anybody say that I've not been? It sounds unreachable when you look at this sometimes. That I'm always chasing after saying I'm not prideful. Well, David is saying you can actually have this contentment. Just like Paul says that he found the secret of contentment. What was that secret? What was the secret to contentment that he said? that he had, that he found. That famous verse, often quoted, often misapplied. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That was a secret to contentment. That was a secret. That you can do all things through Christ. You can suffer like Paul and be content. You can be riddled with the disease and be content. You can endure poverty and be content. You can endure all sorts of sadness and be content. You can have success, which is more of a threat to contentment than anything else, and be content. So he says, hope in the Lord. That is the answer. Notice the singularity of this. Hope in who? Not in the Lord and something else just bringing God into a a piece to a puzzle that fulfills the puzzle. No, hope in the Lord, a single-eyed devotion to the Lord, the one who can give you and provide for all your needs. Hope in Him. It seems so simple, doesn't it? It seems so simple, but yet 
is elusive. J.C. Rowell, the great Anglican pastor of the 19th century, he said this, there are two mysteries in this life. There, there are two things, I forget the exact phrase, but there are two things that are wanting. He says, humility in the youth and contentment in the elderly. Humility in the youth and contentment in the elderly. It seems so elusive, like trying to squeeze a wet piece of soap. Just squirms out of your hands the moment you grasp it. Well, here's the thing. Notice not just the singularity of this, but notice who it's in. In the Lord. And notice what Paul says. The secret to contentment is that I can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens me. You may have come here with a weak faith, but as the Puritans often said, a weak faith always clings to a strong Christ. So the answer to contentment is hope in the Lord. This time, forth, and forever. Amen?